Well, I want to begin this morning with a very heartfelt thank you. Um, For those of you who have heard my story, you'll know that there's a little bit of history behind today for me um, that's made this a bit of an interesting emotional week. Um, The short version is that I spent one year in my first church before I was asked to leave. And then I was hired very quickly at my first covenant church, where I spent three years and uh, began my ordination process there. But then I was blindsided by that senior pastor and asked to leave after three years. Then I worked for two years as a transitional worship pastor before my contract was finished. There's been a lot of um, hard times on this journey toward ordination for me. And uh, when I felt like I had been dealt a crushing defeat. But God was in my call at each one of those other churches, just like God is in my call here at Bethany. And so for me, this means that our journey here together is only just beginning. And that is something for which I am very grateful, for which my family is very grateful. So thank you all so much for today. Um, It's more meaningful to me than maybe you realized when you walked in this morning. It's the times when we feel like we've been dealt a crushing blow or defeat that tend to catalyze those harder questions for us. Questions like, God, are you there? God, do you really care about me or do you really care about this world? Why, God? Why suffering? Why evil? Why hardship and ugliness and pain? Now, If you've ever asked questions like that, you're not alone. And in fact, you are in excellent company, as we shall see in just a minute. Now, if you're just joining this for your first Sunday, welcome. Um, This is the 12th and final week in a series called Love Is, where we've been focusing on the 13th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, we've come a long way in the last 12 weeks, and I hope that your experience has been one of God's love for you and that you've grown in your capacity to love others. We've explored how God's love is patient and kind, how God's love is not envious or boastful or proud or rude. We've heard how God's love is others-oriented and self-sacrificial. God's love is slow to become angry. We've heard that love is passionate about the truth instead of its own image or ego, that it bears up under our relationships in the midst of conflict, and that love is full of trust because God can be trusted. And so we come full circle with what Paul calls in the beginning of this passage the most excellent way. The passage closes with the words, love never fails, or in the New Living Translation, love will last forever. Now, if you looked at the Greek, um, which I didn't because I don't speak Greek, that is what commentaries are for, um, you would find that this means that God's love endures. Uh, The literal definition is that God's love is constant and unwavering, that it's faithful through and through. But Paul has to say this because there are times that we think that God's love has failed. Now, if there ever was a time when it felt like God's love has failed, it was the year 587 B.C. The years of 588 and 587 B.C. were very hard years for Israel because it was over those two years that the nation of Israel was systematically and catastrophically wiped off the map by the empires of Egypt and Babylon. The culmination was in the siege of Jerusalem in 587, where adults and children alike starved to death, 
When the city finally fell, sons and daughters and grandparents were killed in front of their families, and the most able-bodied were carted off to Babylon to work as slave labor, while the city itself was razed to the ground with fire. So the Babylonians were nothing if not thorough. And so our Bibles contain this little book about two-thirds of the way through, uh, following Isaiah and Jeremiah, called Lamentations. Now, I think we tend to avoid certain books in the Bible. We avoid Song of Songs for its risque content. And we avoid Revelation because it's super weird. And we avoid First and Second Chronicles because they are super boring. But in this case, the subject matter is super hard. And as the title says, it's not a happy book, but rather it catalogs this journey through suffering in its entirety. At first glance, Lamentations has no encouragement to offer. It opens with the words of an unnamed narrator who will call the poet, and he says, How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. The movie's opening scene fades up following a holocaust on this quiet, desolate heap of ashes and rubble that was once a proud city. As this poet continues, he describes in great detail what happened to this city, whom he calls Lady Zion, and he holds nothing back. He's honest about the suffering of the city, and he's honest about the city's sin, how the people of God turned away to worship false gods like Baal and Molech, who demanded, among other things, human sacrifice, and Asherah, who demanded ritual sexual slavery and prostitution, how the people of God broke their sacred covenant with God in some of the vilest ways you can imagine. Now, the poetry is at once breathtakingly beautiful and torturously descriptive. After we hear of her sins, Lady Zion describes with bitter regret how the city fell, how children starved at their mother's breast, and how the people were scattered like dust in the wind. She says, young and old lie together in the dust of the streets. My young men and young women have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered them without pity. Torturously descriptive, and yet... It also speaks to the image of God in people that even after this brutal, agonizing suffering, we are driven to redeem that suffering with hauntingly beautiful art and music and poetry. So then there's this pause and the tone changes. The poet, who begins as this objective observer, has heard Lady Zion, and we find that he too was there when the city fell. And then he says this. I am the one who has seen the afflictions that come from the rod of the Lord's anger. He has led me into darkness, shutting out all light. He has turned his hand against me again and again, all day long. He has made my skin and flesh grow old. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and surrounded me with anguish and distress. He has buried me in a dark place like those long dead. He has walled me in and I cannot escape. He has bound me in heavy chains, and though I cry and shout, he has shut out my prayers. He has blocked my way with a high stone wall. He has made my road crooked. It's like the poet has taken Psalm 23 and reversed it. Those green pastures have become a walled prison. The quiet waters are now heavy chains, and the straight paths are now crooked. After a few verses, he continues, My own people laugh at me. 
All day long they sing their broken, mocking songs. He has filled me with bitterness and given me a bitter cup of sorrow to drink. He has made me chew on gravel. He has rolled me in the dust. Peace has been stripped away, and I have forgotten what prosperity is. I cry out, my splendor is gone. Everything I had hoped for from the Lord is lost. If there was ever a time when it seemed like God's love has failed, this is that time. This is the lowest point in the entire book of Lamentations. And though there are still two chapters left, it seems that all hope is gone, that nothing can possibly redeem this. Now, it's worth noting that the poet is given no name. Tradition tells us that it was the prophet Jeremiah, um, who was one of a long line of prophets who warned Israel of these dire consequences to breaking a covenant with God. But Lamentations itself does not name the poet, so the poet could be anyone. Anybody could be going through this sort of agony as their world is torn apart. Now that we have this book in our Bibles is actually very telling. Because there is one voice that we never hear. Not once, through the whole book of Lamentations. We never hear the voice of God. In every other book of the scriptures, God has something to say. But not in this one. And yet, this is still a part of our scriptures. And what that tells us is that suffering matters to God. Not only as it happens, but in the preserved memory that it did happen. That such a thing happens, it's something that we must wrestle with if we are to believe what Paul says. That God's love never fails. Now, if you're sitting here and you're wondering if the world today has gone well and truly mad, congratulations, you've been paying attention. However, if you think this is a new development, I have some news for you. It's not. But as they say, if you are disillusioned, that means that you had some illusions in the first place. If God in his covenant with Israel had been holding back the nations... When Israel broke that covenant with God, they were in essence saying, God, we don't need you. And so we've heard that love is slow to anger. We've heard that love is patient. But sometimes love has to be kind enough to allow the object of that love to make their own choice. This is what freedom means, that God does not force himself on anyone. Because love that is forced, or love that is enforced, is not love. That is law. God sent prophet after prophet to warn them of the consequences of what happens when you push God away. And yet they did not heed those warnings. So as God lifts his hand, he has tears in his eyes. And Babylon swept down over them like a tide and left them scattered and in ruins. And then Lady Zion turns around in her pain and in her bitterness and regret and says, Look, Lord, and consider... Whom have you ever treated like this? Why didn't you do anything? Where were you in my hour of need? Lady Zion thinks that the punishment doesn't fit the crime of Israel's idolatry with Moloch and Baal and Asherah. She accuses God of being an unjust, unloving, and unmerciful. And instead of declaring that there is no God, she turns toward him. And she boldly, maybe even brashly, demands a response. 
Something is desperately wrong, she says, and then she questions, God, why won't you fix it? If you have ever felt that way, again, you are not the first. She protests the injustice and the slaughter of the slavery and the burning buildings and the suffering children. She even accuses God of being its cause. And God never says a word. But what if this is not an uncaring silence? Knowing that the world is clearly not as it should be, God has here created space in the midst of the scriptures for us to grapple with suffering. So instead of God speaking and overruling the voices of everyone else, God makes room for the refugees and for the slaves and those who have been utterly and completely wrecked to have their own voice. In fact, God takes their voices and he makes them his own. If God truly is a God whose love is constant and unwavering and eternal, then God is strong enough to bear our accusations and our mistrust and our fear and our bitterness, even in times of catastrophic suffering. In fact, let me suggest that our struggle with the existence of suffering and injustice is actually a sign that we trust God more than we think we do. If the existence of suffering bothers us, it's because that we know that suffering must somehow be wrong. Somewhere deep down in our DNA, we know that it's against the manufacturer's specifications, as it were. And so what that tells me is that we know that the Creator made this world for good. We know that He is a God who is true to His Word. That His love is unwavering and overwhelming and reckless and never-ending. Our cries to God are based on the presumption of God's inherent goodness. And yet, seeing the world as it has been broken... We also long for God's reassurance that justice will be had. The poet expresses all of this. But he allows his pain and his misery to move him not away from God, but towards God. Begging God to end the suffering and restore the relationship with his people. In the next verses in this chapter, he says this. The poet says, The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss, nor should he. Yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. Have mercies begin afresh every morning. Does this sound familiar? I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who depend on him, to those who search for him. So it is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. It is good for people to submit at an early age to the yoke of his discipline. Let them sit alone in silence beneath the Lord's demands. Let them lie face down in the dust, for there may yet be hope. Let them turn the other cheek to those who strike them and accept the insults of their enemies. No one is abandoned by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he also shows compassion because of the greatness of his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. In our suffering, it is so easy to forget the goodness and the faithfulness of God. 
So when our current experience points us towards the contrary, it can take an act of will to force ourselves to remember there's a larger reality that God's love never fails. Missiologist Christopher Wright says it this way, that this is faith struggling with vertigo over the chasm between what it knows to be true about God and the realities that we experience in this fallen world. The poet remembers that this world was not always so. That God has always been faithful in the past. One of our greatest hymns of the faith comes from this passage, and we sang it earlier this morning. God's mercies are new every morning. They never cease. Great is his faithfulness. See, God doesn't see failure the same way that we do. That God's love never fails does not mean that suffering doesn't happen. It doesn't mean that the consequences of our poor choices won't come calling. It means that God's love of us does not depend on us. We are not the source of love. Not in our actions. Not in our state of being. God is the source. And so in our recognition that suffering is wrong that it's at odds with the way that the world ought to be. Rather than doubting God's goodness, it points us toward the need for a redeemer, for a champion, for a savior. In making space for the cries of the oppressed, in taking that on is his own voice, God shows us the voice of a suffering servant. The scripture calls this person the man of sorrows, or as we find out later, Jesus the Savior. See, rather than ending suffering from afar, God chose to come and enter the mess of a broken creation and take suffering upon himself. It is no accident that Jesus was born to an unwed mother, that he was a refugee in Egypt, that he was scorned by the Pharisees, that he was beaten and mocked and nailed to a cross, his side torn with a spear. While he's nailed to that cross, he wails a lament from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But unlike Lady Zion, his sins were not his own. See, it says that he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by humanity. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Like sheep, we have all gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, I know that it's not all worked out yet. I know that there's still much in process, what we call an already but not yet kingdom of God that's still taking root in our world. Our voices still cry out in those times of suffering. There are still victims of wars and refugees, and orphans, slaves of human trafficking. 
All you have to do is open a newspaper or Apple News or Google, and you'll see this sort of thing all over the place. If we as Christians claim to imitate God, then just as God has made space for the oppressed, for the voices of the refugee and the orphan in the Bible, we too must make room for them in our midst, for their voices in our midst. We must stand for them. We must stand with them. And like God, we must be their champion and their defender. The question, church, is does injustice truly grieve us? Next, we must never rush toward hope. I think we have a tendency to want things to just go away so that we get to feel better about them. And a premature rush toward hope is what makes us feel better. But that's really just burying our heads in the sand. It's dishonoring the voice of the oppressed and the marginalized that God has taken on as his own. Instead, like God does in the book of Lamentations, we must allow ourselves to sit with our grief. We must sit with the grief of others. And we must wrestle with the fact that our world is still groaning in frustration. What Paul calls the pains of childbirth. I promise you that if you do this, your understanding of God's grace and God's mercy will be so much more profound. But then, then we get to realize why we have a Savior and that the end is sure. Death has died on a cross and life, beautiful and free, is available for all because God is good, because God is faithful, because God's love has not ended and that God's love never ends and he will go to every length to act on it. And so as Paul wrote, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will then bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? And the good news? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for you, your sake we face death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither present, nor the future, nor any other powers, height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So wherever you are today, I dare you to suffer. I dare you to listen. I dare you to wrestle. And I dare you to grieve. And when you see the need for a Savior, I dare you to hope. Because there is hope and his name is Jesus. So God, we praise you today as your creation who have wandered astray. We thought we knew best. 
But God, we dare to hope that you have a better way, that you have walked ahead of us to clear the path, to reconcile us to you. God, today we throw ourselves on your mercy as we trust in your resurrection, that your faithfulness stretches to the skies, that your goodness and your love are forever. Show us the way forward, O God. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me now? One way we practice this hope is to share the Psalms together. So we join together in responsive of Psalm 136. It says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And you say, Give thanks to the God of the gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him alone does great wonders. To him who led his people through the wilderness. Oh, you can say it louder than that. He remembered us in our lowest state. And he freed us from our enemies. He gives food to every creature. Give thanks to the God of heaven. And together we sing.